Welcome to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast aims to bring the sermon from our Sunday morning service to you each and every week. We're currently in our sermon series, Next. The best is yet to come. For the past 20 years of Rolling Hills, we have seen God do more than we could ever imagine. Countless lives have been impacted for eternity. Many have professed their faith through baptism. Adults and children have grown in their faith through discipleship. Campuses have been launched in communities all throughout Middle Tennessee. And the vulnerable and the least have been served throughout the world. God has shown up time and time again, and now we faithfully look ahead to what is next for His church, knowing that it's not about us and our future, but about God and His perfect plan. Our prayer is that this will be a season that we look back on and see as one where God grew and stretched His people in ways He never has before. We're believing we will see restored relationships, miracles happen right before our eyes, radical salvations, and prodigals returning home. We believe for all of this and more. In this series, we're walking through the book of Nehemiah and how God's call on his people in that day is one he still has for us in 2023. May he find us faithful as we step forward, trusting that the best truly is yet to come. So listen in as we jump into what the Lord has for us today. Good morning. I'm real glad you guys are here. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, like your analog one that you're going to flip pages, like I love the sound that they make, um, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be in chapter 5 this morning. If you're digital, no judgment, you can just scroll and find it on your Bible app. We're also going to put the words on the screen so you can follow along this morning. We're going to be going through the entire chapter uh, of Nehemiah. Uh, number five. And I'm so excited about this because it it, it continues this series that we've been in. And just to catch you up, if you haven't been able to participate so far, if you're brand new this week, you're like, okay, I'm jumping into Nehemiah 5 and I didn't read Nehemiah 1 through 4. It it actually piggybacks a lot that's going on for the life of Israel and the Jewish people in all of the Old Testament. And, And we get to these couple of books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and they find themselves in the same timeline of God's people returning from exile. And why were they in exile? Well, because they disobeyed God for like 400 something years. And so he turned them over to the hand of a neighboring nation that would oppress them for 70 years. Like that's a long time. I haven't been alive for 70 years, but I'm creeping towards it as many of you are. I get it. Okay. So we're looking at a people who are returning back from exile. And you watch this and you see this in, in, in connection to what's going on in the world today. In connection to, like, if you haven't heard, or if you haven't seen a headline, or if you don't watch the news, you, you, you know that there is an enormous amount of unrest. Well, there's always been unrest. There's always been difficulty in the Middle East, in, that, in this portion of the world, throughout all of our lifetimes, and throughout all recorded history. It goes all the way back to the Bible, where you know that we're in two weeks of, of utter chaos and utter turmoil, and people are dying by the thousands, not only because of aggressions of war, but also because of the limitness, the limited nature of resources, and there's a lot going on, and we could easily just sit back and say, wow, I'm, I'm really glad that what's going on in the Bible doesn't happen today. And, and then you look and you see, oh no, it, it, it happens. It just hasn't in my little world happened to me. 
just because it doesn't happen to me doesn't mean that it doesn't happen to somebody. And just because it doesn't happen to me doesn't mean I can't be empathetic and learn and, and experience what's going on for others. I've been sitting in an Esther Bible study on Wednesday nights. It's taught by Kelly Minter here in this room. And it's a women's Bible study, and that's okay. I sit up in the balcony, and I don't make any commotion so that I'm not disturbing anybody. But it's a fan, like the next time she teaches Bible study, I'm just going to go ahead and put in there that it needs to be co-ed because we could learn so much, and we might as well. And all the women in the room are like, no, I don't want a co-ed Bible study. I don't want all the guys in here. I get it, trust me, but it's fantastic teaching. And she said something that was incredibly winsome and unbelievably wise on Wednesday night. She's going through the book of Esther, and we look at, we look at Ezra and Nehemiah, these leaders that got to lead part of the return, these initiatives to take God's people back from where they were in exile all the way back to the land that had been promised to their ancestors, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all those guys, the land that they took with Moses and Joshua, the land that was theirs as a united kingdom under David and under Solomon, and then all of a sudden divided, it becomes susceptible to invasion, and because of their disobedience, the Assyrians overtook the northern kingdom, and the Babylonians overtook the southern kingdom and they were carted off and had to live life underneath someone else's rule and it was damaging for not only their everyday life but also their connection to almighty God and now we've got the the the, the Persians who are ruling the Babylonian empire they've taken over and they've allowed with blessings the people of God to go back home and so Ezra and Nehemiah get to lead part of those efforts. Ezra, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, and son of Shealtel, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, we see them come back into town and rebuild the temple of God so that they can reinstitute the worship of God. Nebuchadnezzar tore it all down, and they get to rebuild it back up, but it has no wall, and that's where Nehemiah enters in. He's cupbearer to the king of Persia, and he goes, and he's looking sad in front of the king. He's like, well, you've never looked sad in front of me before, so like, what's wrong? And Nehemiah boldly says, the city of my ancestors in the city of my holy God lies in ruins and there's a temple, but they are susceptible to another invasion. And it's just going to happen all over again because there's no wall around it. Let me go back and build the wall. And he does. So Ezra and Nehemiah, they go back and they see the temple constructed. They see the wall constructed and they're celebrating all these things. We'll get to that point, but Esther never gets to go back. She's not part of the remnant that returns. She's part of the people that have to stay. And she's living in a palace as queen over Persia while her people are making their way back to worship God. And Kelly said something really incredible on Wednesday night. She's like, the author of the book of Esther, and it applies to the author of Ezra. It applies to the author of Nehemiah. It probably applies to the human author of every single one of the books that we have of Scripture, Old and New Testament alike. The author of the book of Esther and also Nehemiah and Ezra and every other book did not have our western 20th 21st century bible study gatherings in mind when they wrote their words they weren't going you know somewhere in the distant future there's going to be a whole bunch of people and a pastor in blue jeans and sneakers standing on a stage in front of a group of people in largely comfortable chairs they're they're contoured right i mean like they feel good in a room that's got central heat and air i don't actually know if that's true like i think we do i know we have thermostats that we can adjust and it gets comfortable in here sometimes. Like, like they weren't thinking there's going to be a whole bunch of people who gather in freedom to, to, to sit around in churches that are, that, are, that are intent on being comfortable for them in pastors who are wearing blue jeans and sneakers to talk about the things that happened to us. They weren't writing down their words so that you and I could one day open them up for 30 minutes a week and be like, wow, that's really, really neat. And they weren't writing these words so that we would have fodder for capital campaigns for the future and all of the endeavors that we do for the life of the church. They weren't preserving Old Testament narratives and histories and stories so that you and I were the target audience. 
And when you understand that, when you, when you envelop that, and when you figure out that, it allows you to look at Scripture in a brand new way. If you want to participate in the Esther Bible study, I'm sorry, it's over. It finished up this past week. You can't come. Um, but we'll actually start a brand new Bible study series this Wednesday night. It's just four weeks. It is co-ed. Ladies, please still sign up. But dudes come too, because I well, actually have been in a room just full of women for the past seven weeks doing Esther, but with me on stage, that's weird. So I need some guys to sign. It's called How to Read the Bible Better. Like, how do we dive into Scripture and understand the author and the narrative and the context and the history and the language that's all there so that we can understand that, yes, there is an, a story for us. Yes, there is an application for us. Yes, there is an understanding of how we're supposed to relate to Almighty God, understand His incredible Word, and apply it to our modern blue jean sneaker lives today. There, we can engage Scripture in that way. We're not the original audience that doesn't mean that we're hijacking it and appropriating it for our agenda. The principles are just as clear, and there's something really powerful for us in Nehemiah chapter 5 today. Months ago, even as much as a year ago, when we were putting together a sermon and a teaching calendar to know that we were going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5 on October the 22nd, we had no idea that two weeks prior to this, the Middle East was going to unravel again. And yet this chapter speaks to us. It speaks to us about injustice, it speaks to us about pain, it speaks to us about oppression, and it speaks to us about our responsibility in the middle of all of that. And we can look at a people who were carted off to exile and go, wow, that was so barbaric, wow, that was so difficult, I'm so glad that things like that don't happen in our world today, but they do happen in our world today. And we can relate to them in that way because of this. Step one, and it's in your notes this morning, if you like to jot things down or fill in the blanks so that you... Stay awake and or remember something later on in the week for us. And this isn't just something that's the worldwide narrative of people in a developing country or people in a war-torn country or people in an oppressed. It's, it's really applicable to us today who walk around the world that we live and go to the same Walmart as people who have not always enjoyed the same level of freedom that I have who have not always had the same level of shared experience that I have in the world. We still have a whole lot of injustices right here at home. We still have a whole lot of isms that are really difficult for people, and I can dive in and understand what God's Word says to that and the way that I'm supposed to live in light of that. Step one for you and I in understanding any sort of justice or injustice issue is always awareness. Just understanding what the problem is and knowing that it's far more nuanced than anything that you and I can imagine. Verse 1 in Nehemiah chapter 5 says this. Now the men and their wives, these are the people that are back working on the wall. They're giving it their all. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry. And that word outcry is literally to bend the heart of God. It's the same word that you find in Genesis when Sodom and Gomorrah was so evil, there was a sinful outcry to God, like rescue us. It's the same word that's used in the book of Exodus when the people were slaves in Egypt. It's, it's that kind of outcry that bends the heart of God. And it's that level of pain that's going on right now in the lives of the people. The men and their wives raised a great outcry, but this time it wasn't against an evil outside oppressor. It wasn't even against the guys that we talked about last week, Sanballat and Tobiah, the people who had always been against the Jews, who had always been anti-Semitic against God's people. It wasn't this external force. It was against who? Their fellow Jews. The men and their wives raised a great outcry against who? Their brothers and sisters. Some were saying in, in verse 2, we and our sons and daughters are numerous, yet in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. 
Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still, others are saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood, mercy, as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. There's a group of people that are part of the family from among the people themselves, and they are exploiting their fellow Jews. And so you look at the timelines of the people that were able to return, the timelines of the people that were able to go back. At the beginning of Ezra, this, this whole wave goes back, and they start the work on the temple, and then they pause for a minute, and then a, another wave goes, and they, they finish the work of the temple, and they, they reinstitute worship. They, they bring their sacrifice to the altar of God once again, and then now another wave has come back to rebuild the wall, and the first two waves who came back to build the temple are now feeling fat and happy in their homes. I don't know why I said that they were fat and happy in their homes. You can be fat and skinny. Okay, whatever. Um, like, they're oppressing the new people who are coming back. It's the nobles, the officials, the ones who got there first are now taking advantage of the ones who came. There are people who are advantaged, taking, they're exploiting the disadvantaged and the new folks. I, I learned this week, you know, as a part of our big initiative in the life of Rolling Hills, we're a 20-year-old church plant. We're celebrating all the great things that God has done over the first 20 years, but we're also turning the corner and saying, well, what about the next 20 what about the next 50? What about the, what about the next generation? Like, what are, what are we going to dream? What are we going to see God do in miracles? What are, what are we going to offer to the community? I learned this week that our newest campus, it's called Haywood Hills. It's basically South Nashville over Nolensville Pike towards Antioch. I learned this week that that campus, unlike our other campuses, this one is probably a close second, within a two-mile radius. Just, you could walk there. Like, I don't know that we would. We'd probably get in the car, ride a bus or something. But, like, within a two-mile radius of that campus, there are nine check-cashing, predatory lending stations, taking advantage of people who are in need, imposing exorbitant interest rates on folks who are just trying to make it. And, and if we don't know that, then we don't know that this great amount of injustice is being committed in our world and that people are walking in difficulty that we never get to understand. Justice starts with an awareness of what a problem actually is and then it means even recognizing our own role in it. I'm glad that we didn't skip chapter 5. We could have glossed right on over that and gone to the next chapter that would really help further our fundraising cause to make sure that we've got initiatives that are going to happen next in the life of Rolling Hills. It would have been easier to skip a passage that talks about the oppression that's coming from your own people and the ways that they are taking advantage of others, but we're not. We're diving in. And this is something that we all have to reckon with understanding injustice and being aware of what's going on in the world means that we take time to acknowledge the depth of the difficulty. It's incredibly complex. It's unbelievably nuanced. We've got people that are saying out loud, crying out to God, in order for us to eat and stay alive, we got to get grain. Others who are popping up, hey, we're mortgaging our fields. Some are coming back and saying, we're having to borrow money on our fields in order to pay taxes. It's exorbitant and we can't meet the demands. We're having to even subject our own sons and daughters to slavery. Anytime you and I sit back and talk about injustice in the world, poverty in the world, hunger in the world, slavery in the world, difficulty that's out there in the world, but then also things that are right here at home, there's a temptation to really oversimplify what all those things are. But there's a lot of complex issues. There's a lot of really challenging things. And it's okay. 
when you and I are met with that kind of injustice, that kind of difficulty, that kind of pain. It's okay when we turn on the news and we see the depth of degree of difficulty that's going on in the Middle East. It's okay for that kind of injustice in the world to make us angry. Like, it's okay to be mad. It's okay to be frustrated. That word anger, it's right here in the book of Nehemiah chapter 5. Like, it's right for injustice to make us angry, and it should prompt action. In verse 6, Nehemiah is like, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. And it's the same word for anger that we use to describe God in the book of Exodus when he was angry over the oppression of his people and he was angry over the refusal of Moses to go and do something about it. Like it's a righteous kind of anger. Nehemiah feels inside of him something's really wrong. And it's not just wrong because we're not building the wall. It's wrong because when we took people back to build the wall and all they want to do is follow God's plan for their life, we're actually taking advantage of them in the process. Something's really wrong for this. And I wish I had inserted another point in this moment because yeah, it is right for injustice in the world, in our communities, in our home. Like, it's, it's right for it to make us angry, but it should never make us arrogant. Because we don't know the whole solution. Like, you and I, we don't have all the answers for what's going on in Israel. We don't have the, the, the biggest picture of what's, like, we can sit back and say that God Almighty is doing something to work out his plan and his purpose, and we can know that that's true, but we don't know the worldwide global solutions that have to solve that, and you and I, come our own next elections, don't know the global, worldwide, even local solutions to fix poverty in our community either. Like, it's okay for injustice to make us angry, but it should never teeter to make us arrogant but it can still prompt us to be a people of action, and we see what that is in Nehemiah chapter 5. It says in verse 7, I pondered them in my mind. Like maybe before we post, maybe before we get mad, maybe before we like have this crazy radical solution that we think everybody else should just get, like maybe before we take it that far, we should take a step, like it's okay to take a step back and really just to consider the fact that we don't know everything. The fact that we don't have all the right answers and that we don't have all the... So he says, Nehemiah, I pondered them in my mind, and then, after that, I accused the nobles and the officials. And I'll pause right here. There's a lady named Heather Zimple. She's a discipleship pastor at National Community Church in Washington, D.C. She's a great speaker, good author, and I've learned a lot from her through the years. I heard her say one time on a stage, it's fantastic. She was like, a lot of us read our Bibles like we read our yearbooks. You remember yearbooks, like annuals that you will get at the end of the year? Um, my kids don't know about these because annuals cost like $200 right now. You are never getting a yearbook. Like, <laughs> my mercy. Like, what in the world? Like, we are, we're thinking real high of yearbooks in the world. Like, do you remember yours? It wasn't that much money. But like, so our kids don't know. That. Like, yearbooks. What did you do when you first got your yearbook? This is for like people over 30 in the room. You looked for all the pages that had your picture on it. A and a lot of us, we, we get the Bible and we're like, let me see all the verses that are about me. Let, let me see all the stories where I can find myself. And if we do that in Nehemiah chapter 5, it's, it's, it's fun to imagine ourselves as Nehemiah. Oh, I heard God's call and I was, I was burdened by it. And I, I took a big bold move and I answered it. And I was a great leader and I was a great organizer. And I, I was dealing with all kinds of opposition in the moment. But I persevered and I powered like, everybody wants to be a Nehemiah in the story. And if you can't be Nehemiah, you're like, well, you know what? I'm the oppressed. I'm the victim. I'm the people that are working hard, giving it our all, following Nehemiah's commands, and yet the mean folks over there are taking advantage, and there's, there's, this, there's this evil enemy on the other side that's benefiting from my pain. Like, if you, if you can't be Nehemiah in the story, you, you, you settle down to be the victim. 
The problem is, nobody wants to be the noble. Nobody wants to be the official. And if we're really narrating all our lives here, looking for our names in the story, looking for our pathway to understanding about who we are, we're the entitled folks that feel like we ought to always have everything that's good and everything that we deserve and everything that's owed to us. So Nehemiah, in righteous anger, he, he looks at the nobles and the officials and he accuses them. Verse 7, he says, I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a meeting to deal with them. Like, I'm going to get these guys together. And he, this is what he said. As far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. And now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. And they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. And this is the reason they could find nothing to say, because they knew exactly where Nehemiah was going in this moment. This summer, hanging out with middle school and high school kids at Rolling Hills, and then at the beginning of the school year, hanging out with college students and young adults at Rolling Hills. I'm 45, but I learned an expression that I did not know before this year. It's giving. Now, only the people under 25 are laughing and get it in this moment. And I, I'm going to poorly explain what. It really means to, like, put off a vibe or to like give a, an expression, and I'm probably butchering what they're like. Like somebody would say, oh yeah, it's giving. And you're like, it's, it's giving what? Like I don't even, like a present? I love presents. Like what, what, are, we, what are we giving here? It's, it's, it's giving a vibe. Well, here's Nehemiah in his speech to the nobles and the, and the, and the officials. He's, he's giving a Levitical vibe. Like when they, he says these words, they, they know exactly what he's giving them in this moment because Leviticus chapter 25, the, the law of the people and how they're supposed to organize and how they're supposed to serve and the ways that they're supposed to live their lives when they came into a land of freedom. It says, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and a stranger. I'm sitting here going, okay, like I'm supposed to help the Israelites who are like me the way that I would help a foreigner and a stranger, and the implication is basically anyone, the people that are among us and the people who aren't like us, we're supposed to help them all so that they can continue to live among you. And he says, do not take any interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. If you continue on in that chapter, in Leviticus chapter 25, it eventually gets to verse 42. It says, because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. Because all of you people are the ones that I rescued, that I gave a land, that I gave a name, that I gave a promise, that I gave my law. They must not be sold as slaves. And then it says in verse 43, do not rule over them ruthlessly. But again, that sentence, but fear your God. Essentially, a lack of care for the poor, for the orphan, for the widow, for the abandoned, for the unemployed, for the homeless, for the refugee, for the war like like a lack of care is a lack of connection to Almighty God. Like if we're not angry about their plight, if we're not burdened by it to the point of wanting to do something, to enact a rescue, toward, like if we're not angered and employed and in value to do something in those moments, a lack of care and concern for people who are oppressed, people who are marginalized, people who struggle, it indicates a lack of connection to God. Nehemiah said, and it's in verse 9, so I continued, what you are doing, remember he's talking to the nobles and the officials, is not right. Shouldn't you, and then he says that phrase, walk in the fear 
of our God. Mm, y'all, he's quoting Leviticus. We ought to hear, we're not supposed to take advantage of others. We're supposed to make it possible for them to live among us. We're supposed to be the people that, 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 that ensure that they don't go into slavery, much less that they did. Like, shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? It's giving a Leviticus vibe. It's telling the rescued people of God to act like a people who have been rescued by God. It's telling a people who have returned to their land to act like a people who have been blessed to return to the land. Proverbs chapter 9 says, the fear of the Lord. We read that three times in the book of Leviticus, and Nehemiah just quoted it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is, it equals understanding. For you and I to understand what real wisdom is, it will involve submission, we'll see that in the passage, and sacrifice. Pick up in verse 12, here's their response. All right, Nehemiah, we will give it back. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Ooh. Raise your hand if you're a dad and you long to hear your children say that. Okay, side note. We'll do as you say. So then Nehemiah summoned the priests and he made the nobles and the officials take an oath on what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep his promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen. It's like me on a Wednesday night sitting in the balcony when all the women are downstairs here and Kelly Mitchell teach. I'm like, mm, amen. I agree. And then they praised the Lord and the people did as they had promised. You see, it's not enough for us to tell God, oh yeah, your word is good, I intend to follow that. Like, we have to tell God that his word is good and we intend to follow it, and then actually follow through with what his word says. It says, moreover, Nehemiah starts getting personal here, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor, he moved from being cupbearer to the king to governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 whole years later, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. The earlier governors, those preceding me, they placed a heavy burden on the people and they took 40 shekels of silver for them in addition to their food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, out of fear for the Lord, out of a concern for God's people, I did not act like that. And what we have in this passage of scripture is a picture that we're going to get really familiar with anytime we go to the New Testament passages of scripture because the Jewish people came under oppression one more time. Let's just be honest. They've come under oppression about a hundred more times since this moment. But the Roman Empire comes in and they start exacting all these insane taxes on people and they allowed Jews own brothers and sisters to become tax collectors in their communities who did what? They took advantage of their brothers and sisters for their own personal gain. And Nehemiah's like, I didn't do like the early governors. Out of the early people who returned, the ones who were building up their own homes and building up their own businesses and participated in the enacting of the temple, who brought the fattened calf to the altar and who helped worship, they went back to their homes and they became governors in the community. They became nobles and officials. And when we came back to build the wall, they took advantage of us. I didn't do that. Given his own personal story, he says, instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. 
what are you devoted to? Like, what's most important to you? What, what matters the most? It says, all my men were assembled there for work. Verse 16, we did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Here's a guy that used his extra for others. It says in verse 18, each day one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine and all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands on the people were heavy. The Nehemiah story tells us that just because you're entitled to something, just because you work for something, just because you earn something, just because you have something, doesn't mean that you're supposed to exhaust that something. In fact, God's plan for us is exactly the opposite. The people of Israel had been specifically commanded by God to leave some room on the edges of their fields and on the edges of their lives and in the bedrooms within their home. They were supposed to be a hospitable people who allowed those who were poor, those who were marginalized, those who walked in difficulty in life to always have room at the table and room at the field and, and an opportunity to glean. They were supposed to be a people who didn't live according to their excess but left some room for other people to be blessed. They were supposed to be of people who continued to pull their resources, their time, their talent, their treasure, and all of their opportunities for a better, greater, God-honoring good. They were to walk humbly. They were to walk obediently. They were to walk sacrificially. John Piper says, just because you can't afford it doesn't mean that you should afford it. There ought to be a limit, and the limit ought to be what we can do about others this passage of scripture doesn't talk explicitly about money and resources, but a lot of scripture does. This one talks about the heart behind it. If you want to ask the question, like, why does scripture talk so much about money? Why, why does scripture talk so much about finance? Because it's the chief competitor for our hearts. And it will steal our focus away from God and shift our priorities away from others like nothing else. We just sang a, a song about, I will trust you again. Money's also one of the most tangible expressions of looking at God Almighty and saying, okay, I trust you. We want to be a people who walk in that kind of margin, who walk in that kind of trust as a part of everything that we're doing with next what are the next 20 years going to look like in the life of rolling hills what are the next decades going to look like in the life of our campuses we've been blessed by some significant testimonies that you can continue to go back and watch or if you missed one go back and see this morning we're blessed to be able to hear from pam engel one of our partners as she talks about what's next turn your attention to the video If you had asked me when I first got to Rolling Hills in 2014, what, would, what do I think it would look like in 2023, I would not have been able to imagine what it would look like now. It's the immeasurably more uh, concept. And uh, same thing now, I can't even imagine what God's going to do in the next 10 years, 20 years at Rolling Hills. I just know that I've heard clearly that it's part of my job is to be able to set the platform, set the stage so that there is a space for God to do that. 
Hello, my name is Pam Ingle. My faith journey is an interesting story. I describe myself as a tumbling tumbleweed, so I uh, grew up in a retired military family, and what I mean by that is I think Dad forgot he was retired. <laughs> in serving at the church, uh, part of that is giving my time and my talents, but also it's important, I think, to give finances. Um, that's uh, clearly stated in the Bible for us to serve in that way and give in that way. Giving back to the church has never been a question for me. You just open the Bible and it says it right in there. When you are so clearly directed to do something, it's not for me to decide whether the answer is yes or no. It's for me to decide to actually follow what God is asking me to do. You can't outgive God. I challenge us to even try because he will always find a way to take care of his children. God is present at Rolling Hills. Uh, you can see it in the people's faces. You can hear it in their voices. You can see it in the kids that are growing up, hearing and learning about God. And heaven forbid that somebody not come to church because they showed up at Rolling Hills and there wasn't a seat for them. That's why it was important for me to ensure that all the believers in Middle Tennessee who are looking for a church home that find their way into Rolling Hills would find a comfortable place where they would be able to meet God. Christian organizations such as Rolling Hills, Christian bodies of believers like Rolling Hills had such a significant impact on my own faith journey when I was younger. Uh, uh, through that body of believers, I became a, a Christian myself. I, I think that's a primary mission of Rolling Hills is to be that body of believers that can come around a, you know, a 12, 13 year old young person who is, sees something different in those people around her and sees uh, friends and family in people who were just the day before strangers. Mm -hmm. So I am all in in supporting Rolling Hills and being that kind of place so that other people like myself can come to find Jesus. Dr. Faida Shapiro is somebody that was introduced to me this week. She's an award-winning author and journalist and PhD-level expert on all things Jewish and Catholic and, and, and Orthodox Christianity-related. She lives with her family in Israel, and she's ultimately, at the end of all that long list of resume, um, a mom who's trying to help her teenage kids make sense of what's going on in their front yard. And so she was asked in an interview, like, how do you um, raise a, 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 a children in the middle of uh, a religious war, in the middle of unbelievable racism and apartheid-style laws, and, and how do you raise kids who will know how to be faithful to God in pursuance of peace and the, the greater human flourishing amidst everything that's facing your people? And as a listener interview, she says this, I tell my kids there will be an after, after all this and you are part of the after. You're part of the after. This will somehow settle, and then something else bad will happen, and then that'll settle, and something else bad will happen, and then that'll settle, and until we see Almighty God realized fully in the world through His Son, Jesus Christ, there will continue to be this level of challenge. If it's not here, it's somewhere. There will always be an after, and you are, until the return of the Lord comes, you're, you're part of the after. That's what I was thinking about this week as I looked at everything that we're doing next in the life of all of our campuses at Rolling Hills. Is like, there's an after. 
and, and we get to be part of the after. And some of you are like, well, I won't be part of the next 20 years at Rolling Hills because I won't be around for the next 20 years of Rolling Hills. And I think, whoa, that went morbid real fast. Um, maybe that's true for all of us. The book of Job says that the number of our months are decreed and that there is a limit that none of us can live and extend beyond. Some of you may just move, like you may go to college somewhere, you may get a great job somewhere, like I don't know why anybody would leave because it's a great place to live, but you know, somewhere God may take you to a faraway place where you've got to live in like, I don't know, Texas or something, and you can't be a part of what God's doing here, so you're going to miss out on the next 20 years. I, I get it, but there will be a people who come after. Um, our church, the way that we established as a Nashville campus uh, a little over five years, uh, yeah, five years ago now, was that we merged with the church that was here, and the building that we're sitting in today was, 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 was put on this property by a people who made sacrifice. They lived um, according to their means, and they used the margin to come together and to put a church house on this property, and if you'd asked any of those people, like those people didn't put this building here in 1930 so that a pastor wearing blue jeans and sneakers could stand on stage and preach at it in 2023. In fact, they might have rolled over because that would have been a lot. They, they, didn't, they didn't build this building with drums in mind. The people didn't write these stories with you and I in view, and yet we're the people that came after, and we are blessed by their sacrifice, and we want to take a, a, a pause in the middle of this to say the people who came before us made a sacrifice, and here we are enjoying the incredible blessings of it. The people at Rolling Hills for 20 years made incredible sacrifices along the way, and here we are enjoying the blessings of it. There's going to be a people who come after us, and we want to be people who sacrificed in order for them to be able to not just enjoy it, but to experience God in the middle of it at its very core, whether it's the thing that we're trying to do down in Columbia or the community center that we're making at our South Nashville Haywood Hills campus or the expansions that we're doing here in order to reach the community around regardless of what it is we're doing next is all about people who do not know it's a focus on the ones who will come after and, and you'll hear these expressions over and over and over again you'll hear this idea of like the whole goal is just 100% participation that we would be a people who say, okay, we'll do, what you, we'll, we'll do it. Like, we'll jump in. We'll be sacrificial. We'll, we'll find some room on the margins to participate in whatever this is. And then you'll hear this expression, not equal gifts, because not everybody can do the same thing, but equal sacrifice to commit to some sort of level of obedient generosity that's, that's, that's pictured for us here in somebody who had all of this entitlement but didn't live according to the edges of it so that he could be obedient to God. And what we do in next is not going to be in response to some really neat campaign with some really list of great ideas about what's going to happen in our campuses. And it also can't be out of some guilty response of what's going on in Israel or what's going on in Ukraine or what's happening in North Korea and the people who are really, it's not going to be in response to the way that we feel and the, the outcry that burns up inside of us about a refugee or somebody that's oppressed all over the world or right even here in our own communities. It's not just about recognition of racism or sexism, because I'll tell you this, 50 years ago in the life of any church in Nashville, they didn't imagine that we would all be worshiping together. And they were making their decisions then to see those injustices go away so that we could be unified today, yet here we are because we're the people who came after but regardless, anything that we do to participate, anything that we do to sacrifice always has to be in regard to this holy word. A God who looked at us and rescued us and then told us to act like rescued people. The book of Nehemiah chapter 5 closes with him looking at the Lord and saying, remember me with favor, my God. Not because of all I've done for you, but because of all I've done for others all I've done for these 
people. Anything that we do as a church, whether it's called Next, whether it's called Kids Ministry, whether it's called Christmas, whatever it's called, is all about those who come after. What are we going to do today to make it possible for people to hear about Jesus tomorrow? And how are we going to set the stage, build the building, put up the whatever in order for people long after us to continue gathering around his name and learning what it means to give their all? That's what's next. It's about the after. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the chance to be in this place, to, to, to gather and to learn. And what we pray, God, is that we've encountered a word that wasn't written down specifically for us, but it's been delivered to us so that we might know you better, follow you more closely, and reach other people so that they can know your name, so that they can recognize that it's for them. Lord, we do ask that you would look on us and find a very challenged um, and yet faithful, obedient, sacrificial generous people and that you would look on us with favor not because of what we did for you because Lord we do desire to serve you but because of what we did for others because of the way we thought about the after it's in the name of Jesus that we pray today amen thank you for listening to the rolling hills sermon podcast be sure to share this episode with any friends and family in your life who may benefit from it and make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download Church Center, our Rolling Hills app. Follow us on social media or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.